Welcome to the What Next podcast, brought to you by me, Carl Considine. What Next exists to share sober stories with the intention of inspiring change for the better. Whether you're sober, sober curious, or just looking for general life inspiration, we're the podcast for you. Our stories are full of heart and always without judgment. So today's episode is a very special episode because we're talking about the impact of drinking on friends and family. And to talk about that, I've got my best friend, Anna. Anna is, without a doubt, one of the wisest and one of the kindest people that I know. Um, and I'm really happy to have you here talking about this. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you, Carl. So I thought, shall we start with how we know each other? Yeah. What's your recollection of how we know each other? I do think it's a little bit different to yours. I think we met in a kitchen all right at a party yeah was i drunk yeah it's hard to remember a time when you weren't to be honest that's a fair comment yeah get that in there early well that's what we're here for isn't it (laughs) i i think uh yeah but i did i did only see you in social situations to begin with because it was through mutual friends so it was always kind of seen each other of an evening yeah and you weren't living in manchester at the time so when when i did see you it was weekends and you were drunk and usually singing yeah and then i moved to manchester and i think we started to spend more time together and get to know each other differently not just at parties yeah not for a long time it was mostly it was mostly social time yeah where it was drinking yeah and we like to drink or two together, to be fair. It was nice to have a few wines, right? Yeah, a few wines. Yeah. But okay. I would go home at a certain time. As is always the case, um, yeah, people would go home and then I'd just stay out drinking, right? Um, yeah, but I honestly, I had no idea the extent of that until the last couple of years where you've kind of talked me through. I knew from mutual friends when they were out with you that you would keep it going a lot longer but it it kind of wasn't in the early years of our friendship I don't I don't think I realized that you had a problem at all yeah I didn't so I guess um what I wanted to start with is the heavy end of the scale um and without a doubt the reason that I am sober is because of something that you said to me. And that's why this conversation is just so important. I remember in December 2020, so kind of peak lockdown, me just being quite isolated at home by myself. And as you know, at this point, my drinking and my drug use was just totally out of control. Um, And I remember I wasn't really speaking to many of my friends. So I pretty much cut myself off from everyone. And I think you were one of the only people that I know I didn't always stay in touch. And I know I didn't always respond to your messages. And that's something in itself, actually, right? The fact that... Yeah, it's a huge feature that the amount of times that you told me that you... I was the only person that you were speaking to also puts a great deal of responsibility on 
or it did at the, at the time. But yeah, I think there's a lot to explore around not responding to messages and, and so on. Yeah, which was like my classic behavior, right? And that was either because I was on a binge or I was coming out of a binge and I was in bed. Um, but either way, it was, it was selfish behavior. But before getting into that, yeah. I think, so yeah, December 2020, we spoke and you said to me that you were waiting for the police to call to say that I was dead. Yep. And that's a lot, right? That's, I, I've spoken before about the fact that in my darkest days of drinking, towards the end, I felt like I wanted to die. And by I wanted to die, I mean, I didn't want to be in the world anymore. I struggled with my existence and I struggled with just being an adult and responsibility. So it was kind of ironic because although I fantasized about not being here, when you said to me, you're waiting for the police to call to say that I'm dead. That was really conflicting. And I felt like I didn't want that to happen to me. So it got through for whatever reason, you saying those words really explicitly. It got through. It was the first time I kind of really heard that in terms of the reality for me. But then there's the second part, which is, the fact that I was making you, putting you through that, you know, we're best mates and we've got a lot of love and care and affection for each other. For me, flipping that and thinking about if I was in your position and watching you do that to yourself and thinking that you could die because you were doing that to yourself. Yeah, that was a big wake up call. It's so strange, our recollection of time, because you're talking a lot there about kind of towards the end and you're, you're pinning that on 2020. I really wonder why that one got through. Mm. I really do, because it was three years in the making of conversations like that. Mm. We you know, you, you were sending me and other friends at seven o'clock in the morning. I've just listened to this song, play this at my funeral. You were, you know, reaching out to me and others. I'm, I'm sat on my bed with a, with a belt round my neck and we were trying to find ways of getting into your flat to be able to get to you mm. in order to make sure that you were safe. So it, it, we've never talked like this before in terms of why that one got through. And I, it, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit, it's interesting hearing it because God, I feel like we were screaming at you for years. Mm. I do. But I just wasn't hearing it. No. No, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm very glad I did get through to yeah. you in that way. <laughs> me too. Um, and, it, and it did resonate with you. I just wonder why it was that one. And maybe it was because 
you know, where we were, you were just edging closer and closer to it being a reality one way or the other. Yeah. But yeah, my phone, yeah, I, I was, I hated the sound of my phone going off and not knowing whether it was from anyone, anyone hearing it, hearing a notification and that split second thinking of this could be it about you. It was very real. Mm. So what sort of, what were you experiencing at the time? What sort of effect did that have on you and life and just day to day life? That That's a lot to have hanging over you, right? Yeah, it's it, it it's a heightened state of anxiety, really. It's I, I I mean I remember at one point much earlier than 2020, um, you know, you have a, a very close group of friends and there's a lot of interconnection between friends, but not necessarily people who communicate kind of directly with each other. And I remember reaching out to some of those people who I am friends with, don't get me wrong, but in terms of day-to-day contact, reaching out to them to say, you know, we've really got to do something. And just the difference in knowing what the approach we should take. I had a really horrible conflict with with somebody who was saying, it's on you, unless you want to change, nothing's going to change. And I was really struggling with, and they were right, don't get me wrong, but I, I was really struggling with the responsibility. Such a feeling of responsibility of, of I can't take my eyes off you, even though I'm so angry with you and, I, and you are letting me down on a, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. At a time when, you know, there was a lot of other stuff going on, that knowing that the fear of if I get that phone call and I haven't done everything I possibly can to keep you here, I won't be able to live with myself. And that knowing that you're so determined to just self-destruct. And at that point, you know, we we might have arrangements to see each other and you would just not turn up or let me know five minutes before, oh, sorry, love, I've been out all night or, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I've just woken up seven hours after we were due to do something. But kind of one in every six, you'd honour, and and we might have opportunity to to just talk about what's going on for you, because you did know it was a problem, and you did talk as though you knew it was a problem, and you kind of knowing your desperation of not wanting to feel the way that you did, and then you would always say you're the only one that I can talk to like this. Again, I've got to carry that. A lot of pressure with that. Yeah. And I'm glad I was there to carry it. And I, I'm, I'm so proud to be by your side through this journey. But, yeah, well, I was angry. Thank you for still being here. Um, 
and I've said it so many times, but I'm sorry. And yeah, it, it's, I, it's not apologies. I know, I know, but like I can't sit here and not apologize when you play it back to me like that. And when I hear it back, I just can't believe that you're still my friend. You know, there are, I can remember those examples of letting you down and, you know, maybe one in six times I'd turn up. And yeah, I totally value your friendship because you stuck around, right? I had friends in my life that were like, nah, I'm not, I'm not down for this. I'm out. Um, but you didn't. Um, but that's that I, I think at the time, cause I was watching you lose friends, you know, and in turn, that meant I lost some of those friends as well. Mm. Um, and that was really difficult. And it, there's a dimension to it of, of at the time being, I was angry with those people for giving up on you. But actually, they needed to. And, and yeah. the, there is no judgment whatsoever. And I think... It was a point where you'd lost you'd lost somebody who was a, a really good friend who you'd spent a lot of time with. Yeah. And um I remember getting to the point of me actually thinking to myself, Oh my word, he's actually prepared to lose me as well. And that was the realization when I I got that this wasn't you. That you could allow people to go out of your life and not fight for them and not do the things that they needed, turn up, show up, think about other people rather than thinking about, you know, your next night out and, and keeping that going. When I realized that your behavior would carry on, even if it meant that you would lose me. Mm. I mean, this is a very arrogant way of thinking. I know that, but, you know, it's your own ego. If you're prepared to lose me, this, when we've been through so many things and we've shared so many experiences outside of drinking, this cannot be you. This must be something mm. that is impacting you, that is addiction, not Carl. Yeah. And is that what you mean? So when you say you realized this isn't me, this isn't Carl. What that allowed that? me to stay. Right. That allowed me not to give up on you because I was, you know, there's, there's the instance I referred to earlier when two of us came to your flat and picked you up and thought, you know, innocently, naively thought if we get you out of the city, if we get you out of the the culture that is all around you, if we can just move you out and separate you from the lifestyle in some way, that might help. If we can just do that, we get the phone call. I'm sitting on my bed. This is it. We're desperately trying to find ways to get in the building. We turn up, we, you know, we get you out. And then what we need to do is take you to a, a and E into, you know, a particularly difficult situation for me mm. that I would not have been able to do that. I would not have been able to support you if I genuinely believed that your selfish actions were selfish. 
I was only able to do that because I knew that Carl was still in there somewhere and this was something else that was direct in your behavior. Yeah, yeah. And in that example, I think I thought at the time, so physically removing me from the city centre. So that was one of my rock bottoms, right? That was probably one of my biggest rock bottoms. And I'd been drinking and doing cocaine for probably three days straight. Um, And it was a case of just being sat in my flat doing that alone. I wasn't partying. I wasn't out having a nice time with people. I was sat feeding my addiction behind closed doors because in that environment, I could do it to the extent that I wanted to do it without judgment. But what it resulted in was me having these episodes of deep, deep, deep depression. And on that occasion, you turned up and thank God you did turn up because I don't know what would have happened that day. Um, And you took me to the hospital and you did everything that a good friend would do, right? You were always fighting for me. And, you know, I got support in terms of mental health support, post the hospital, all of that stuff. But I still didn't have that desire to change. I think I wanted to at a surface level. I could, it was surreal because I could feel what was going on around me was not right you know, sat in A&E with two of my closest friends because I've been on this massive binge and they're so concerned for my safety and for my safety because of what I would do to myself. Like that's far beyond the realms of normality, right? Mm -hmm. So I knew something was wrong. But I still even don't think at that point, that was a few years before I got sober, I still don't even think I was ready to change. and Of course you weren't. We, we went through all of that, moved you out of the city. And you, it was in August and you turned around and you went, mm, I think what I'll do is I'll just go to Pride this weekend. God. And then I'll sort it out afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you were nowhere near ready to say, I tell you what I'll do. I'll continue being selfish mm. and or my addiction will continue being selfish, to use your analogy, not me, yeah. my addiction, but it's still my actions, right? I'm just going to go to Pride this weekend, even though I've just been in hospital. My friends are worried about my safety. I don't even think I had any money. I don't know how I even went to Pride. I was absolutely broke. I was in debt up to my eyeballs. Yeah, I probably borrowed money to go. Um, but I think we'd kind of, I was going to move out of the city, right? And I was going to move to where you lived and it felt like it was far enough out of town for me to try and live a slightly different type of life where there was no temptation. So remove that element of temptation Mm. with the bars nearby, the people that I used to drink and do drugs with nearby. But the truth is it didn't matter where I was because I would always find that stuff. I'd always seek that stuff out. And I moved to where you lived and I didn't know anyone that kind of drank or used drugs in the way that I did when I moved there. It didn't take me long to find those people. Yeah. 
and it didn't take me long to be doing exactly the same thing. And actually, when I weren't with those people, I would just go back into the city centre. I was living in this house physically and literally out of the city centre, but I was still taking myself back to go and do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Under the guise of, I need to go back to the city because that's where I can buy a roast chicken. (laughs) That's what he used to say to me. Oh, God. Mm. I'm vegan now, so no roast chickens. Um, I did used to enjoy um, those roast chickens from that particular supermarket. Um, Yeah, under what a ridiculous guise. And actually, that just makes me think about everything that I did was under a guise, right? Mm -hmm. I think because you knew me best, you, I'm assuming, and maybe this is a question for you, but you could see through that stuff and perhaps some of my narrative and perhaps some of my excuses. But I do think there are other people in my life that just genuinely didn't know or perhaps weren't just didn't want to face up to how bad the problem was for me. I think you're actually giving me a bit more credit there. I, it's only afterwards I know how bad things were when we moved you out. I actually, in interactions, you were very, very good at, at presenting the facade. Mm. You were very good at it. Um, I was driving down the high street once, um, and saw you and it was then because you didn't have that facade on you did you didn't have that mask on and it was when i saw you and i thought that that's like looking at an addict really yeah what did you see your pink t-shirt first of all (laughs) to be honest (laughs) um you were bloated your skin was a funny grey kind of patchy colour. And I saw desperation. That's just the face that you were wearing, just utter despair, just walking down the road. Um, And it was was then that I I knew that it hadn't worked as a strategy. Yeah. Um, And it, it was at that point, I thought, well, all I can do is stick by you until the inevitable end that isn't going to be that far off. God. I never knew that. I never knew that you'd seen me. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because when I used to, when I lived there and I used to have these binges, when I used to run out of booze, I used to walk down to the shop at the end of the high street to get more booze. But I was always terrified of you. I knew you drove up and down that road like many times a day. And I was so worried about you seeing me. So I'd often do like a little route around the back streets. And, you know, obviously it, I clearly didn't always do that. But I'm actually just wondering if I was drunk and or high at the time when you saw me. Mm. Potentially I was. Yeah, I think probably from... The fact that you were most of the time. So when did you, is that when you realised I was, like maybe we should address the word addict or alcoholic. Um, I would 
describe myself as a recovering alcoholic and addict. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I use both words is because booze and drugs came hand in hand for me. So if I have a sip of an alcoholic drink, it immediately makes me want to take drugs. It was never the other way around. Mm. I would never take drugs and then start drinking. It was, it was always alcohol was the gateway and then I'd want to do drugs. Um, so I use that terminology and I think for some people that terminology can be a bit off-putting, but that was the severity of what it was for me. Um, you just used that word. When, is that when you realised that I was an addict? Or was it sooner? Was there a, a, a turning point? Um, I knew that you were an addict. I think, no, maybe not an addict. I knew you were an alcoholic a lot earlier than that. Right. Um, I didn't. I didn't know about the drugs. It, it until a lot later. I thought. I thought the drugs were just a, a part of. You're going out and where you were going out and who you were going out with. I, d- I didn't realize it was so inherent in mm. your lifestyle. I knew I knew you were an alcoholic when you had spoken to me about. I can't even remember who it was. You'd been to some clinic because, again, you were talking to me about the fact that you were starting to realize that that things were wrong, and you quote. We were on a walk somewhere. And you quoted these numbers to me about your blood count or something like that. And you had said to me, if you're in this ratio, if you're in this bracket, then it, it's really dangerous. Um, yeah. But if you're in this bracket, it, it's all all right. So I was desperately trying to learn and understand. And obviously my understanding from about uh, medical things was quite limited, but very much aware from a particular frame. Um. And we were we were walking and you were talking about it and you were going, so yeah, I mean, really, I think what they're saying is I just might might be beginning a dependency and I just wanted to stop you in your tracks and say, how on earth, like, listen to yourself. You've just quoted the numbers that put you in a bracket that mean that this is really serious and yeah, and is being an alcoholic, but you can't even use that word. You were completely... Yeah. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? What does this mean? Oh, I go back next week and then I go and see somebody in two weeks and then this and then this. And then, of course, I didn't see you for another six weeks. Yeah. And at that point, so what happened when you went back? Oh, I didn't go back. Of course I didn't. So it was that absolute confirmation. I know. I think that's what they call denial. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. There was a lot of that. Um <laughs> You're so right, though. It's really interesting hearing you say that. I, It was like, I remember that conversation and I remember exactly where we were on that walk. We were walking down the hill back towards the lake and it wasn't like I was on the precipice of those numbers that would indicate that a person is dependent. I was like way out of it, right? Mm-hmm. I was way into it. Yeah. But you couldn't even hear it. You were literally saying, you have to be between 8 and 10 to be an alcoholic. And I am 10, which means I'm dependent. It it just, it didn't didn't fit. You couldn't hear it yourself. Well, I wouldn't believe it. And I do tests online. There's a test that the doctors do. Mm. And it's those standard questions. 
And I definitely didn't answer it truthfully. Does anyone? Yeah. And then I would often find myself sat Googling, am I an alcoholic? What does an alcoholic do? Like just all of these different questions. And I'd spend hours reading the answers. I'd spend hours on websites, reading people's blogs, reading research. I was really informing myself around the topic. But I think what I was doing in the process was, and this is ego and and narcissism, or maybe it's my, my brain playing tricks on me. I was looking for the out. I would read a really in-depth article and find the smallest thing to suggest that I wasn't an alcoholic. Mm. I'd be like, oh, well, I don't do that. So actually, no, I'm not. Yeah. And I'd have, I remember I'd have examples in my mind where I'd think, oh, there was that one time when I went to the pub and I just had two pints and then I went home and I went to bed. And genuinely, that probably happened once in the last 10 years of my drinking. You know, I'd never just have two pints and mm. go home and go to bed. But I'd use that in my mind as evidence that mm. I'm not an alcoholic. And I think there's, um, yeah, there's just an acceptance thing there, right? And with any, whether it's drink, whether it's drugs, whatever, remove the vice. I think whatever it is, if you've got a problem, the hardest part of the battle is accepting it and admitting it to yourself. Yeah. But I do, I, as much as you're saying you were looking for the out, I think you were exploring it and, and there was a chink somewhere in you that was silently trying to scream at you that there was yeah. something. Um, and I think the fact that we had those conversations and that you did feel that you could talk about it yeah hopefully had some influence on you following that path yeah i'd like to think so for sure for sure the thing with you is i know i put a lot of responsibility on you saying things like well i back then actually i didn't know i know now listening to you say it i can i can um like understand that dynamic a bit better but i know I did used to say, you're the only person that I talk to. And when we did talk, even if I'd been in the chaos, which is how I often describe it, your words would get through, like how you would handle conversations with me was always without judgment and always unconditional. You know, I had experiences with lots of friends when I was in my drinking and people have got different styles and approaches right and I had experiences with friends I had people shouting at me I had people sending me horrible messages telling me to sort myself out um and that stuff obviously just for me that didn't get through like tough love didn't work but that but that is it's the spectrum you know I've been sitting here thinking I feel like I need to advocate though for the, for some of some of those friends because mm. by being the person that you did talk to I was also the person that those people came to sometimes mm. and I I had to listen to their anger or them venting or you know even 
blaming me for still facilitating or allowing you to mm. to carry on because I wasn't taking that same stance. And I, my lack of judgment of you and, and what you were doing is also extended to my lack of judgment on, on how other people handled it because every body in your life was doing it from a place of love. Yeah. They really were. Um, and I, it's only because I don't shout at people that I didn't shout at you. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't because I am wise. You are wise. Yeah. You are wise. So what was, um, what was going on behind the scenes? You know, there was, you've mentioned a couple of times, conversations with other friends. And mm -hmm. um, I definitely had a sense of that sometimes. You know, I, I remember people would make comments like, oh, you know, a few of us have had a chat and this needs to happen or this is what we're going to do. And, you know, people would say, oh, we're not going to come out with you anymore mm -hmm. or we're not going to drink with you anymore. And I mean, it didn't really matter because I'd go out by myself. I didn't care. I was mm. fine going to the pub by myself. And like I say, at the end, I was drinking at home alone anyway. Yeah. Um, but then I also had friends who knew it was a problem and were still comfortable with socialising with me in that way and drinking with me. Um, so there must have been a lot of stuff happening in the background between. Yeah, there, there was. I mean, don't. Don't forget, it's quite conflicting also because the only way I could spend time with you that you would definitely show up for is in terms of it being something that is involving drinking. Yeah. I'm not sober. I do want to go and have a glass of wine with, with friends sometimes. And actually, we used to have really nice, good conversation at those times and I really valued them. So the conflict for me around... I know I am putting you in a position where you're going to drink, but I'm going to be quite selfish because that means I get to spend time with my friend mm -hmm. and do something that I enjoy doing. The difference is, is that I don't have a dependency and I was able to go home and, and not carry the, the night on. Mm. Um, so I know certainly for me, and I think um, with one of our you know close mutual friends, he also wanted to do that. He he wanted to have his social life with you um and and go out and dance and and do all the, the things that you two did on nights out. Mm. But I remember the frustration and the upset from him. And I remember him coming home one evening and talking about how he had begged you to just come home. Mm. It had been a really, really good night. It had been, I think you'd got to about, um, like about midnight or something, and it was, it was just, right, let's go now. This is, this is the peak of the night. It's starting to feel a little bit, kind of detrimental, and you just wouldn't go. No. And then the tension that exists between me and our mutual friend around me trying to advocate for you to a certain degree, don't give up on him, you know, all all of that. But I'm not the one that was ever really in that position with you because our, our dynamic has always been, a, you know, when we, when we were having alcohol together, it was just a, a few drinks and a conversation. I wasn't out for yeah. the night with you. So, so I couldn't even really experience what our, our friends were experiencing in terms of, 
what's going on behind the scenes. It brought these pockets of communication between people. Like our friendship group when we first became friends was very, very close. And, it, you know, it was, it, everybody was kind of in communication a lot and, and various life events and so on and, and life moves on and things have spread. But we've all got each other's numbers and we, you know, we'll all celebrate milestones for, for each other. Mm. So there were these, yeah, like I said, these pockets of WhatsApp groups and me speaking to person A and somebody else speaking to person B and what, what can we do? What should we do? Just leave him. If he's not going to sort it out, just leave him to it. Why are we bothering? This is, this is too upsetting. He's not going to change until he wants to change. Um, and then I think the, when you, when you lost, um, a friend that you'd been going out with in the city and he had just kind of started building friendships with me and, and with somebody else. Um, and I kind of suggested earlier, I feel like I lost him as well. Um, because he walked away from. From me. Yeah. From you. So he walked away from me as well. Um, that was that was particularly unpleasant behind the scenes because people were so appalled at what you did in letting him down. And he was at a point in his life when he really needed mm. a friend. Mm. Um, and you weren't there. And so behind the scenes that hurt and that anger was playing out a lot more than you potentially know about mm -hmm. and there was a lot of communication and frustration um i think everybody everybody got to a point of there is nothing more that we can do we keep you in our lives and we suffer for it if we want to have any expectation on you as a friend, then that's going to bring us pain and suffering. If we try and help you, it doesn't work. Or we let you go. We were out of options. Mm. So what was the option for you? I didn't let you go. I'm sat here right now. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, what would you say to people listening that think perhaps someone's in their life who maybe they've got a problem with drink, maybe they've got a problem with drugs, maybe they, they're not even at the stage of describing it as problematic, but something just doesn't seem right. What, from your experience, from what you observed in terms of my progression over the years, what are some of the things that perhaps might be some of the telltale signs or some of the things to look out for? Oh, so you're looking at a friend and you're thinking this could be growing into something yeah, unhealthy. Yeah. Um, unreliability. Is that even a word? Yeah. Yeah. Um, being so unreliable. Um, and I, I think this is, this could be a, a, I think that there was shame. There was shame around that unreliability in you would hide and 
cut off communication and yeah. contact. Oh, it was awful because there was, it was awful for everyone, right? But there was the shame of, I was experiencing shame because of my drinking and my drug use mm-hmm. and the impact that was having on me and my life and even just things like personal care, you know, that stuff just ended up going out of the window. Mm-hmm. Um you know, washing, brushing your teeth, all of that type of thing. Um, so there's all the shame associated with that. And where I tried to cling on to friendships and relationships and to make plans, five times out of six. And that is generous. Yeah, that is probably very generous. Mm. I didn't show up. And I didn't show up often without warning. Um, so then there's the shame attached to that. So then I wouldn't want to get back in touch with people. Um, Yeah, it was horrendous. And I'd just bury my head in the sand. And often you would reach out or you would just check in to let me know that it's kind of okay. So that, and again, you know, this goes back to you. You are wise and you are kind. This goes back to you just being unconditional. No, it goes back to me being selfish because you let me down. You don't turn up on a weekend to London and I've got to get on a train without you. Yeah. And I don't know that you're not coming. And then I don't hear from you for four days. If I don't forgive you and something has happened. Yeah. If I don't reach out to you and I get that phone call, what am I left with? Gosh. So it wasn't always coming from a place of this is for you. I had to do it for me. And that, that is really important that I think you understand that. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the reality, right? Yeah. That's the reality. And um, thank God that I sorted myself out and we're sat here having this conversation today. Mm-hmm. Um, so unreliability, what else? What are the things should people look out for? Um, it, it's, it's that a night out that just keeps on going, yeah. I guess. I mean, you are extreme sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> With maybe, or without a dream. <laughs> maybe less so now. Um, but certainly at the, at the time, it was, it's that always wanting to keep it going. Oh, right, you're going, I'm going to stay and just have one more. You know, that kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, it was just... I don't know, life is life, isn't it? And it, it kind of moves on and there are other things that that people build around their social life, but your social life was the heart of everything. And the signs were, the man that I met was very extroverted and happy and very ambitious and driven mm. and successful. And watching you lose any kind of pride in who you were professionally, that was a big sign. Yeah. I think. Um, Yeah, because over that, I guess, what, a 10-year window, there was, I came to Manchester doing quite well in work and mm -hmm. being ambitious and having that drive and 
yeah, wanting to kind of make something of my life. I'd come from a bit of a crappy town in Yorkshire and um, I wanted to live my gay fantasy, so to speak, living in Manchester and connecting with that community. And um, I guess what happened is that way of connecting with that community wasn't the healthiest way for Mm me, um, given my behaviours were, I couldn't go home, I don't want to stop. Um, But it's that demise, isn't it? And over that 10 year period, it's it was progressive. Um, it was slow, but it was progressive and the consequences became more notable and it became more difficult for me to cover up those consequences or have a narrative or an excuse for the things that were happening. And often my narrative was, it's my mental health, it's my mental health. And it actually was my mental health, but my mental health was rapidly deteriorating because of what I was putting into my body. Yeah. Um, but that became that, what do they say, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And, you know, I definitely had this, oh, if you'd had my life, then you'd be like I was and you'd drink the way that I do. And again, kind of using that as an excuse. Um. So yeah, I guess something just around that, watching things, people not reaching their potential, right? Mm-hmm. And losing a grasp of that stuff. Yeah. And, and, and losing a desire to. Yeah. I would say. What else? I mean, you did get fat for a bit. <laughs> you did. Yeah, I did put on a few stone. Um, I'm actually three stones lighter now than... I know, I can see. Yeah, than when I stopped drinking. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's a benefit. If you're sober curious, um, Mm. there are lots of benefits. Money, time. Um, I wouldn't describe it as weight loss because I don't think that's the right language to use, but um, it's health, right? Oh, definitely. My health is better um, because... It's almost the two extremes. I've gone from not giving a damn what I put in my body and actually doing anything I can to seek out stuff to put into my body that would send me into a state of oblivion to now being so conscious and so aware of how I treat my body, what I eat, keeping hydrated, exercise, all of these things. and. Yeah, I just never thought I'd be that person, but here I am. So health. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, you again, when I met you, you were a runner. You were doing marathons, even mm. though you forgot your trainers, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but again. Let's no- just pause on that. So I was, I was running the London Marathon and I lived in Manchester and I got to London and I think it was about midnight the night before the marathon. I realised I'd not brought my running trainers with me. Christ. And do you know I ended up actually getting some trainers to run the race? Our neighbour was having a party and um, it was a friend of a friend and he had some trainers and he was still up partying from the night before. And I remember I had to go around to this house in Brixton 
and um, meet him to pick up his trainers. And he answered the door. And as someone who parties all night and, and does those things, I knew exactly what were going on. I could see by the look of him. Um, but yeah, I ran, I ran the marathon in someone else's trainers. So I did always have, I wanted to do stuff. Like I was trying to do mm-hmm. life and trying to be an adult. But yeah, the party got the better of me. The drink and the drugs got the better of me. Um, did you think that I'd ever sort it out? No. Which is why you thought I was going to die. I did. I did. It, it was utterly helpless and without optimism for you. It, re- it really was. That I thought, what am I going to say? At your funeral. And I did. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have to be someone who speaks. God. And I don't want to do it again. And I'm making that worse by sending you texts saying, can you include this song on my funeral playlist? Yeah. And full disclosure, I've got no idea what that song is because I thought just you can do one. Thank you very much. Not paying any attention. That's horrendous. I do know what the song is, but yeah, it's. Gosh. Um, So what advice would you give to. We've talked about, you know, um, what might you see? What might you observe? I guess if there's someone in your position who is observing those things, observing unreliability, observing someone that's kind of not able to stop or say no, based on everything that you know and that we've experienced, what advice would you give? I don't think I'm in a place to give advice, if I'm really honest. I'm I'm in a place where I've been alongside my friend who I thought was going to succumb to Mm. alcoholism and and addiction. Um, I would perhaps not always advise staying and trying to love that person out of it because not everybody um, is in a position to do so and not everybody is you Mm. either. You know, it's a combination of of two factors, isn't it? You you had to find it and you had to fight. Mm. And we know that not everybody does manage to, to find that within themselves. So I would say to anybody who is with somebody in their lives who is facing addiction, you also have to look after yourself because you cannot save somebody. Yeah. You just can't. Yeah. It has to come from them. It absolutely has to. You're not here because of me. You're here because of you. But you can be there, right? You were there. Oh, yeah. And that's what counts. And I would do it again. I would. So... We had that conversation where you got through to me mm-hmm. and that was a catalyst for me getting help. And I tried to get help in the past, right? Mm-hmm. I tried a couple of times. You've kind of mentioned that I had these appointments and I didn't follow up my appointments. And that was mostly because when I got to my first appointment, they asked me if I wanted to abstain or moderate. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, this system's a bit broken. I'm an alcoholic, love. Yeah. Moderate, yeah. Let's let's go with that. You're telling me that I can have a better life and still drink. Perfect. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but you were really angry, you know. Yeah. You used to come out of those appointments so angry about how the system is failing everybody and why can't they do everything? There was so much blame. Deflection. So, yeah, Deflection. so much of it. Blame. Th- that's just, yeah. And me just not wanting to change, mm. me not being ready to change. And I'd come out of those sessions angry and go and drink. Yeah. That would give me a, a, an excuse to drink. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, that was the catalyst. And that had got me to a point of accepting that I needed to do something different. And um, I've heard people use language like the gift of desperation. And that's definitely what it was for me. Mm. I was at a point where I had to do something. I tried everything. Um, and so I had that appointment with Janet where Janet was an alcohol nurse who um, took my bloods and basically told me that I was going to die young if I continued to do what I was doing. Um and again, that got through. And again, I had that almost like physical response in my body the same way that I did when I spoke with you, that I didn't want to die. Um, and that was the catalyst for me getting the help that I needed and going into treatment, going into community-based rehab and sorting out my um, trauma, sorting out my issues, sorting out everything that I was trying to block out through drinking and using drugs. And, you know, I've said a few times, oh, I was a party boy and I liked the party too much. And I was, but I didn't get to where I got to just because I really liked to party. The reason why I really liked to do that stuff was to put myself into a state of not facing reality because there was stuff that I just weren't dealing with. And, um, you know, that's my advice for anyone. If there's something going on, like get the help to address it, even if it's tough. And, you know, for me, it was tough. And as you know, I had some quite difficult experiences in childhood and through going into treatment, I had to address that stuff. And um, Steve, my amazing, amazing therapist, who I hope to have on the show one day, actually. Um, I remember he said to me, leave no stone unturned. Like, this is your chance. Do everything now. Do it properly. If you walk away from this process and we haven't talked about something, we haven't addressed something, you're putting yourself at risk. And do you really want to do that? Um, So, yeah, that's what... There was a, what do they call it, a domino effect. And that's what got me into treatment. And ultimately, that's why I'm sober today. And um, our friendship looks very different. It does. Do you know you've missed a step out there, though? Um, oh, God. Let me tell you about yeah, your recovery journey. What step? Um, there oh, was, yeah. There was, you had just, so you went from Janet and you actually then spoke to somebody else. And you came for a walk with me and my partner and you were again really scathing oh i remember this and there was the lgbt foundation right yeah and i'm so glad that you saw it through because you now talk about that person and that experience very differently but at the time 
you did not trust the process. No. And you actually said, I think he's he's just a trainee, he doesn't really know what he's doing. I know more than him. And God, it was, what an idiot. Yeah, it was so judgmental and so lacking in any trust in the process. And I think if you're saying now to to people, trust the process, I think it's worth highlighting that you really might not in yeah. that moment, but have faith that that will lead to another domino that leads to another domino. Yeah, I'm saying trust the process from a perspective of I've been through it and mm. it was successful. I'm not saying that when I was in it, that I was trusting in the process. And if anything, when I was in it, in those early days of, of getting sober, I wasn't even in it for the long term. You know, I thought I'd do it for a few months. And I actually do think that Again, for anyone listening that wants to quit, sometimes that's just too final. That mm. finality of this is it forever is what it's what encourages lots of people to end up going back drinking because it's just too much of a commitment. And, you know, in your head, if it's today I'm not drinking or this next two weeks I'm not drinking, the next month it you know, I think it's easier to manage that way in the early days. Um, it, that definitely worked for me. But yeah, I remember you're right. And I'd been speaking to this chap who was uh, a substance misuse advisor. And he was amazing. Um, I think the reason I was so annoyed with him. God, it's funny how you remember things, mm. isn't it? I think the reason I was so annoyed with him, because actually when I was getting that advice at the time, I was still drinking and using and I'd stupidly said to him that I had a few bags of coke in my kitchen drawer and he made me empty them. He was like, right, we were on a Zoom call because it was mm. during the pandemic, so it was all done remotely. Um, he was like, right, I'm not leaving this conversation. I'm not ending this call until you've got rid of that. And I was like, I'm not getting rid of that. That's a lot of money I'm not you know um so I think that's actually why it was nothing to do with of course it was nothing to do with him it was just my own anger mm. yeah Gosh. I remember walking away from that conversation going well, I don't think I like you very much because you were so, you were really mean really mean about it yeah so I think I was quite angry towards the end and um I learned a lot about that anger in the fellowship. So once I came out of treatment, well, I met someone in treatment that was going to AA meetings and she was just talking so positively about it. And I was just not interested. Um, but she was a lot younger than me. So I was quite intrigued by the fact that she was this young kind of cool gal and um, she was going to young person AA meetings and all of this stuff. Um, and I went along with her and I got something from my very first meeting and um, what I learned about in the fellowship was a lot about resentment and um, you know they talk about the 12 steps and as part of the 12 steps resentment is a massive anchor for um, driving addiction essentially and driving negative behaviors um, so yeah it I never realized how angry I was until I started to go through the 12 step process and one of the stages is literally listing out 
your resentments, mm. listing out what makes you angry. And it can be like at a macro level up here, stuff that pisses you off in society or whatever it might be. But it could also just be the tiniest things. And again, it's no stone unturned. It's like going into detail on this stuff. And I think naively, I would have always described myself as quite a happy, optimistic person. And then I went through this process and I was like, God, I'm so resentful. I've got so many things that I feel anger towards. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's anger. I wouldn't have agreed with your statement back then, obviously. Um, But now I can really see that. And I guess back to, you know, what other people maybe might see in someone who's struggling. Maybe they might see um, some of that stuff, right? Maybe they might see some anger and resentment. Yeah. You used to find things to be angry about. Mm. I remember you, it was actually probably very late on, just before you really went into recovery. You used to spend hours on Twitter looking at organ farming so you could really just rant. Like you would go oh down God. these absolute minefields, mm. wormholes, whatever. Wormholes, yeah. Molehills. Um, <laughs> and you would just. You would rage about these things. Where were we? Walking around Ancoats or something. And you were raging just nonstop. And I was thinking, why are we talking about this? Why why is this getting your energy? Like literally you've, you've, you've been on your phone. You told me about 20 hours a day to look at stuff. Yeah. So that you could just have somewhere to direct your anger. I I felt anyway. Yeah, 100%. And again, back to when I was in treatment and Steve, this was one of the things that he helped me work through. It was anger directed at myself. Mm. That was just an outlet, right? Yeah. I, had to, I had to channel it somewhere. I was angry with myself for what I was doing to myself. I was angry with myself for what I was doing to the people in my life, to people like you. I was mm. angry with so much, you know, history and childhood and all of this stuff, it was all just anger that I wasn't able to channel. Um, and I used to channel it when I was drinking. Mm. So I'd spend hours and hours and hours. It, and like you say, there'd be a topic, there'd be something that would be happening in the world. And I'd, I'd anchor to it. Mm. So yeah, a lot of anger. Um, so our friendship today then, now that I'm... I mean, how does it feel to you? Like, I was going to say, now that I'm two years on. Oh, it does not. It, honestly, I've said this to you. I, it's a totally different existence. I, I can sit here and I can recall what our friendship was before. But this just feels like it's always been. It, it does. You, you are just the car that was always in there. And our friendship is just always the way that it, or it is now the way that it always was, just without the addiction. I mean, you turn up, that's, that's a start. <laughs> um, yeah. Occasionally, you ask me how I am, rather than talking about, yeah, I'm joking, I'm joking. Stop no, that, I'm joking. stop that. No, it's reciprocal. Yeah. And it always was in your heart, without wanting to sound too twee. I know, and, and your friends know, that your, your care for them and about them has always been there. Yeah. You just weren't in a place ever to be able to demonstrate it. Yeah. 
I remember actually my first birthday after you got sober, being so surprised I'd got this birthday present from you and you put so much effort into it and, and you felt very emotional about it. It was during lockdown, so it came in the post, obviously. But yeah, it was so important to you yeah. to demonstrate that you were turning up for our friendship. And there's there's been a couple of things like that um, that are really nice. It, it Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So I'm being a good friend company. now. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think I'm not going to turn up for something? No. No. Never. Good. I'm making up for it. Oh, I hope, but I hope you're not. I no, hope it's, it's not. I hope it's not like penance and and retribution or anything like that. I hope it's just we get on all right. We have some good chats. We have amazing chats. We have amazing yeah. chats. No, it's not. Sorry, that could come across as me just kind of paying my dues yeah, and and trying to make up for the bad things that I did. But it's not that. I genuinely love spending time with you and um still you're the only person in my life that i talk to the way that you know we talk and well you say that but you're doing a podcast so you're going to be talking to everybody yeah, the way that you talk to here me. it is now yeah. out in the public mm-hmm. um but maybe you've been the person that's encouraged that right um Not at all. You, you i i think the way that you've approached your recovery and leaving no stone unturned You've had to be very, very brave and very vulnerable. And I think you've, people have have joined you on this and are hearing you and you're hearing them. That's part of who you are. It's not any one person. Mm. It's a collaboration. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's like a flip side of, I've talked about losing friendships and friendships changing mm-hmm. in addiction. And there's a parallel to that with getting sober. So our friendship has strengthened and I hope you feel this, but I feel like a deeper connection to you and I feel a deeper connection to our relationship and our friendship. But I've also had friendships in my life that have gone the other way mm-hmm. um but i'm more comfortable with that now right because i know it's because i'm not doing anything wrong some of the friendships around me just weren't the healthiest types of friendships and the healthiest ways of connecting through drinking etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think there's something in that like friendships change in life right irrespective of what's going on for you um yeah i do if we're talking about how our friendship has changed in your recovery, there there's an insecurity being alongside somebody on this journey. You know, your life is changing. It's looked a certain way. We, we've got roles with each other. Hmm. Um, and now you're growing out of that. And, you know, that kind of possessive feeling of, well, what's happening now? Because your life is becoming so much richer and you're happier and you're healthier. I'm worried I'm sounding like some kind of control freak here, but it, but watching watching you change and how you spend your time change is in some ways threatening mm. as well as your friend because, well, are you still going to want to spend time in the, in the same way? 
well, how, what do I do of an evening? I get to a Friday night and I do want to have a glass of wine. You know, I've, my working week, that mindset that I'm in, whereas I know I'm not going to do that with you. So the time that we spend together. And I think when, when somebody is changing so successfully and you're filled with love for who they're becoming, mm but you're also potentially going to see them go off in a different direction. There's an insecurity around what is this friendship going to look like? Um, but I'm glad that I stuck around through it and didn't, didn't give in to that threat. Um, and certainly I don't feel like you being sober is a judgment on my life and how I live my life. Good. Um, whereas I think there's a potential it could in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, that has been amazing. Thank you so much for um, coming on the show and talking so openly. I'm so, so happy that you stuck around. And I'm so happy um, to still be able to call you my best friend. And um, yeah, I hope that, you know, going back to the, the whole purpose of this conversation, if there are people out there listening who are worried about someone. Um, I hope that you've got something from this conversation. Um, it's been super insightful for me too. So thank you, Anna, for coming on What Next. Thank you, Carl. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you got something from it. What Next is recorded at Stave Studios, which is at Stave underscore studio on Insta. If you want to get in touch with me through Insta, it's at whatnext.podcast. Or you can email me at carl at whatnextpodcast.co.uk. For new episodes, subscribe on all the main podcast platforms. I'd love it if you can also leave us a review as this will help us to reach more people. Remember, if you're thinking of quitting or have recently quit, you're not alone. So keep listening for what's next.